Good morning, church. Great to see you, hearty souls, braving the weather out there this morning. Thanks for being here. So glad you're here. We've been talking about being a generous person the last few weeks, and with particular reference to the area of stewardship and the way we manage our money and resources. It's a very popular topic in the scripture, as we've discovered. More is said in the New Testament about this subject than just about any other subject. In fact, in the teachings of Jesus, which we have recorded, there's only one other subject that he spent more time addressing than money and, and, and management, and that is the subject of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the most prevalent subject that we find in the Gospels, and money management is, and stewardship was the second. So it's a very important subject, very important topic. And so today I have selected uh, as our text from the scripture, from the gospel of, of Luke, Luke chapter 19, and I want to just ferret out of this uh, important passage a unique little moment that m- maybe we can learn from. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 29 to 40. If you uh, don't have your Bible, of course, we'll project the words on the screen. Our custom is to stand, to hear God's word. So thank you for doing that as you're able. This is when Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the last time. Uh, This is the, the week before the passion and the resurrection. And so Jesus came, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I mean, God inspire and instruct us today through his word. You may be seated. Thank you so much. In reading this particular passage of scripture, I realize there's a character here that is not mentioned by name, never referred to in any personal way, never mentioned again, but he's in the text. Now we know that the context of this, of this story is the, the preparation for the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem for the last time. We celebrate it as Palm Sunday. We do that, we'll do that in the spring just before Easter. And of course, it has historic significance, prophetic significance, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem under this acclaim on this donkey, this colt. Uh, So the impact of this important moment, though, was made possible by one man. It's the guy who owned the donkey. Have you ever thought of him? Let's think about him today. How important was it that this man donate the donkey? Well, as I thought about this, I thought about the value of owning this kind of animal 
in that particular time and culture. And of course, it was a means of conveyance and transportation. It was also a valuable possession if you had such an animal. I mean, it indicated value. And the third thing, of course, it's a working vehicle. You put these animals to work. And when I thought about that, I saw before my eyes and my imagination a beautiful, new, shiny, bright red, four by four, heavy duty Dodge Ram pickup truck. Now, I'm not very conversive in pickup truck, but this thing had blacked out wheels, very cool, snap-on bed comfort, an integrated antenna that accommodates cellular and satellite and Wi-Fi. Of course, wouldn't matter today in Muncie, you can't get Wi-Fi here. <laughs> it had this multi-speaker sound system, a big gun rack in the back window, and under the hood was a V10 Hemi engine. V10. And brand new, brand new. Now read into that, which no one has ever ridden. Now, how can a man simply allow someone to drive off in a fully equipped brand new Dodge Ram pickup truck? How does a man just fold his arms and watch as a perfect stranger drives off in his new truck? How's that possible? I have three thoughts from this passage. It's on your outline. Here's the first one. You might want to write this down. Number one, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, I realize this story couldn't just begin here. I mean, when you think about it, this is a level of generosity toward which you might move. You may need incremental steps to get to this kind of level of stewardship or generosity or obedience. And so you need prior steps along the way. But a little research indicates that Jesus had been in that man's village sometime before that. And while Jesus was there, he performed a powerful miracle. Let me describe it to you. There's a man in this village who was demonized. He's a young man. He's cut off from his family. He's wounded emotionally. He's cut off from any affection or love. He's actually deaf and dumb. He cannot hear or speak. While there is nothing anatomically wrong with him, Physically, he's together, he's in order, but he is at the same time filled with the demons of hell. This boy's a mess. People are afraid of him. He's afraid of himself. He lives like a beast. He sleeps at night in the shadows of the village alleys. Uh, during the day, he cowers in the corners, hides behind bundles, you know, under stairwells. And occasionally a person will take pity on him him a crust of moldy bread. He grabs it, gobbles it up like a dog, like an animal. He's insane. He's completely lost. Living in the shadows, out of his mind, unable to comprehend himself or his world. He lives like a wild animal. There's no love. There's no embrace. There's no tenderness. He is living the demonized nightmare, which is his life. He's hopeless. One day a crowd is passing by. It's a parade of people with enthusiasm and a tone of celebration. He's put off by this. He's annoyed by this. He pushes himself deeper into the shadows. He's afraid of this unusual commotion. And then as the crowd and their shadows are pushing by, suddenly a pair of sandals stops right in front of him. He refuses to look up. And then with power... 
that seems to penetrate all the forces of darkness that has separated this young man from his sanity, from his humanity, from God himself. A voice like 10,000 waterfalls pierces and shatters, splits the veil, which is this man's soul. And into his consciousness, into the depths of his spirit, he hears a voice and it says, come out of him, loose him, let him go free. And suddenly, do you understand this? I wonder if we can understand. Suddenly he is free, instantly, wonderfully, miraculously, he's free. He can see, he can hear, he can speak, he can think, he's clear, he's aware, he's lucid, he's sharp. He suddenly emerges from the, from the fog and the darkness and the confusion, the obfuscation of his mind into a moment when life now comes into high death. He is immediately aware of reality. He, he has back in his possession his own faculties. He can hear he can speak, he can see things clearly. He is suddenly, in a moment, the day dawns into the darkness of the nightmare which he's been living. He is free. It's an amazing miracle. It's a powerful moment. Let me just say in this context that we have a very, 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 very weak notion of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our culture. Very flimsy. Very poor understanding. The biblical concept of salvation is actually so deep and so profound, we fail to comprehend it. Literally, we have been pulled out of darkness and into light. We have been pulled up from the dead and into the living. It is a translation from one form of life to another. It is literally described as transformation, uh, metamorphosis from one species of being into an entire species of life. So the word salvation translated into English is a Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O, sozo. And it literally means to be delivered or to be healed or to be liberated or to be forgiven or to be saved. It means a total release from every force, every binding element that wants to capture us and drag us into the baser elements of the universe. It, it wants to pull us and drag us down to the jungle floor. It wants to drag us into the darkness and the deepest uh, dysfunctions of humanity. It wants to pull us into the, into, into the worst thoughts and the worst behaviors and the worst patterns. This, 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 this power, this force, is in our lives absolutely broken off of us. We are separated from our sins as far as the East is from the West. We are liberated to a new life and to a new expression of that life and ultimately to an eternal hope. This is what it means to find Jesus and to give our lives to him. It is a complete transformation. This young man, in a moment, if we can imagine it, is transformed from death to life living for years in darkness, in sanity, and in an instant, he's free. Can we even, 
imagine what it may have been like for him. Even just to get a, a, a modicum of understanding of what could possibly have been his experience in a moment like this. This young man looks up into the eyes of Jesus. We don't know what he said, but we can imagine what he might have said. I can imagine what he might have said. Can you? He probably looked up and said, my Lord and my God. Or how about something even more simple, which would be to look in the eyes of Jesus, knowing what's just happened to him and just simply say, thank you. Thank you. I don't believe it's possible then from a biblical worldview, a biblical vision, or even a theological one, you know, the best understanding we have of God, or even if we're, we're not all that spiritual and we, we tend to track more rationally and, and in our humanity and, 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 and function in the world and try to make our way through the world in a more philosophical way. I, add all of those dimensions. I don't think it's possible to actually look up into the face of God and say, God, please wash away my sins. Please forgive me. Uh, I don't want to go to hell when I die. So please help me to be ready to go to heaven at the end of this life. And, and say that to God, looking God in the face, looking God in the eyes and making that request. And then immediately say on the backside of that statement, but please don't ask me for anything. God, thank you for taking me out of utter darkness and putting me in the light, but don't ask for anything. God, thank you for actually liberating me from a bondage which I had no power to extricate myself from and placing me in a liberated, transformed life, but don't ask me for anything. Thank you for actually separating me from my sins, the thing that separate me from you and eternally would separate me from you. So thank you for forgiving my sins and making me ready, making me fit for an eternal life in heaven with you. Thank you for that. Oh, but don't ask me for anything. When I say it that way, you can feel the contrast, can't you? I mean, you can feel that that's unreasonable. That's, that's inappropriate. So no, I believe God expects when we say yes to Jesus, he expects of us full surrender full submission, full capitulation to his will and his ways, his best plan for us. I mean, it's the, only the reasonable thing to do. I mean, it's the right thing to do. I mean, he's done everything for us. We should be willing to say yes to anything he requests in return. So I believe the man said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I surrender. Only the Christ, only the Messiah of God could have liberated me in such a way. And that's our testimony too, isn't it? Isn't that our story? Isn't that our position? Only Jesus could have set me free from the desperate, hopeless place which I lived. Dr. Paul Morrell was a good friend of mine. He pastored First United Methodist Church in Carrollton, Texas for many years. Remarkable ministry, very influential. Uh, Dr. Morrell and I served on the board of a mission agency for many years and became friends. Dr. Morrell's in heaven today. And he told me this story years ago about special services that he was conducting in his church where in the evenings during the week, they were going to have special like renewal services and there'd be special music and he was going to do some preaching and then just invite people to take another step in their relationship with God, get closer with God and more committed to him. And yeah, this is a great idea. 
And he said on the first night, on the Sunday night, he said we were in the middle of the singing. You know, he had a little chorus, uh, you know, and band that was playing, and they were singing the choruses, trying to prepare for the preaching. And he said uh, there were two big double doors at the back of the sanctuary, and they were hinged so that they could swing both ways. And he said in the middle of one of the songs at the beginning of the service, a man hit those doors with such force that it's, it, it sprung them wide open until they crashed into the wall on the interior of the sanctuary. He said it startled people, you know, in the back four or five rows. And he said, I looked up and he said, in walked a very large, intimidating man wearing a Harley Davidson t-shirt, big hobnailed boots, spike leather straps around his wrists. Can you picture this guy, big beard, wide-eyed? He uh, pushed the door open, walked in, looked around. One of the ushers, he said, moved over to him and asked him, what do you want? And the man said, what is this place? The usher said, this is the Methodist church. The man said, what? It's like that. It's like he was annoyed by the information. He, he pushed the usher aside and began walking down the wooden center aisle of that church and those big boots, big guy. My friend Paul said, it was like Goliath, you know, stomping down the center aisle. How many of you know the praise singing was over? <laughs> no, no, no more of that. Praise singing's over. <laughs> he said, the man came all the way to the front and sat in the pew right on the front row. He said, I got up and preached a sermon I, and I, made a, I gave an invitation, you know, for people to get closer to God, take a closer step to him. And he said, all I did was, if you want to get closer to God, you know, you're welcome to come forward and pray. Just come on up here. Come up here to the front, he said. He said, that guy stood up immediately. He said, he walked to the front, went over to the steps, climbed up on the steps, came up on the chancel, walked right over to the pulpit. <laughs> this, is, this is someone who doesn't know how to do church. We love folks like that. That great big man, Paul said, grabbed him and buried his big black bearded face on his shoulder and he sobbed. And he just held him and sobbed. He said he finally pushed away from him. He looked him in the eye and he said, do you see this red on my shirt? He said, I just walked out of my house and I punched my wife in the nose and this is the blood that splattered out on my shirt. He said, I jumped on my bike and I was heading down the highway and a voice said to me, turn right at the next light. He said, I nearly wrecked my motorcycle spinning around to see who was on my bike with me. He said, mister, I'm telling you, there was nobody there. I went about three blocks and the voice said, turn left. Then the voice said, turn into this parking lot and go into that building. He said, this is the first church I've ever been in in my life. And then he looked at my friend Paul and he said, I had no idea what I was going to find in here. He said, but what I found is freedom. Wow. Wow, big wow. I think this is where that young man started in the village that day. You don't start by giving away pickup trucks, by giving away homes and land parcels. You start by saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You start by saying, oh God, I'm blind and I want to see. I'm lost and I need to be found. 
I'm in bondage and I need to be liberated. That's where you start. You start by asking Jesus to save you, by falling at his feet and saying, help me, Lord, please help. It's a very difficult thing, though, for the well-manicured, the well-groomed, the well-perfumed modern American churchgoer. We're not in touch with this sense of need. But I want to just recommend today that the greatest need in modern America is the need to know our need. We need to know, once again, anew and afresh, our need for God. This isn't popular at all. This is the furthest thing from most people's minds. But the greatest need in America today is the need we have to know our need for more of God. We need to cry out to him. We need to call out to him. Help, help, Lord, help me, help us. We need your help. We must find the grace to fall at his feet and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Because without you, I am hopeless. Now, this is a little unusual, but I want to do this with you this morning, kind of midstream in this sermon. I'm not quite finished, but I want to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes with me just for a moment. I know you're thinking about what I've been saying. And maybe you're in the room today and you say, you know, Pastor Greg, I'm not a particularly bad person. But I, I'm sensing today in this moment, I need to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that he might be Lord of my life. Every relationship, every thought, every motive, my possessions, my ambitions, my goals, my dreams, my aspirations. Lord of my life as never before. Could I just offer that challenge to you today? Maybe you need to take that step. You would like to make Jesus more central to who you are, how you live, and give, and act, and react. You want Jesus to be Lord of your life. If that's true for you, would you just slip your hand in the air? Just slip it up. Say, yeah, here I am, Lord. Now, I may, may not be able to see everyone's hand, but Jesus knows your middle name. He knows you as he does. Now, look back at me, if you will. Don't you know that from that day forward, this young man would have done anything for Jesus. Do you believe that statement? From that day forward, this young man would have done anything for Jesus. You believe that? I do. When you hear his story, you know his, you know his story, you know the narrative of his life, you would say, yeah, guy like that. He should do anything for Jesus, absolutely. Talk about a guy totally hopeless and drowning, and not just drowning, but drowned completely hopeless. Yeah, he'd do anything for Jesus. And so Jesus says to this young guy, he said, all right, well, then someday you're gonna hear the words, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. And when you do, you will know that it is I myself speaking to you. And he blesses the young man and off he goes. The young man, we imagine, takes a small job working construction. He puts a few dollars together. He takes a wife forms his own company, finds some good success, finally comes to a point when he can purchase that thing that he's always wanted, new pickup truck. He's only had the thing for three days. It's parked out in front of his house. He's proud of that truck. Why wouldn't he be? V10 Hemi. And then one day he hears a commotion and he goes out on his front porch and he looks and there are two guys, perfect strangers, P3 
Peter and John. They're hot wiring his truck. He says, what are you guys doing with my truck? And one of them says, the Lord has need of it. Second point on your outline, a humble and thankful heart. A humble and thankful heart. See, the obedience which springs from a gratitude-filled heart that knows from where it sprang, from whom it has come, and to whom it shall return, this is giving through obedience which is birthed in joy. My sense that day is that that young guy, when he heard the words, the Lord has need of it, he immediately went, of course, whatever he needs, whatever he requires, whatever he wants. Now, there is, there is a kind of naked obedience, you know, just doing what you're told. You know, it's someone in authority in your life and they tell you to do something. You don't really want to do it. You don't feel like doing it. You're, you're, you do it grudgingly, but you do it because, you know, you, you're asked to do it. Beth and I, as you know, you've heard me talk about this. We believe in tithing, you know, when, when it comes to financial giving. We believe that 10% of your income should be given to strategic kingdom initiatives, and we've spent our whole lives practicing tithing. And we believe in it very much. In fact, we have a great story to tell. We've been together now for 42 years, and for our entire married lives, we've, we've been tithing. And you may say, well, it's nice. You, you know, you've been gainfully employed all this time. You've always had a little extra money and all that. Listen, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. The first 10 years we were married, we qualified for government assistance. We could have gotten government cheese for the first 10 years we were married. We didn't have two nickels to rub together. Now, we never got government cheese. We never took one penny from the government because the government is not our source. God is our source. That's our worldview. It never crossed our mind that we should go get in a line somewhere. Now, I understand the need to do that from time to time, and I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm just saying that we didn't because God was faithful to us. Yeah. So I believe that you can begin to tithe out of a simple determination to obey God, and God will honor that. He will. But that's not the best way. That's not the, the richest way. That's not the most blessed way. It's not the way that brings the most joy. There is a, a way that, that actually brings a level of fulfillment and satisfaction and gratification and joy that really produces the blessed life and beyond blessed. Uh, the way that tithing brings joy is to simply say, God, everything I have is yours. I was a demonized wreck cowering in a doorway until you came. And if you think the young guy in Mark 5, the demonized man, is any worse off than you were, then you're deceived about that because we're just as lost and undone and hopeless as he was. Every last one of us. I was lost and undone and living in confusion and darkness and impending doom. I was a walking nightmare until Jesus came, until Jesus came into my life. That changed everything. So anytime God asks anything of me, I always revert back to September of 1971 when I was 16 years old as a boy who had for the first time come to terms with the lostness of my own soul, my, my own separation from God and my absolute inability to do anything to help myself, it is there I return to consider the amazing grace of God and his ultimate sacrifice for my sins. 
Now listen, listen to my story. The sins of the entire world, yes, for sure. The, the dying for your sins, yes, of course. But I'm talking about my sins in particular. I realized then I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I owe everything to Jesus. I owe it all to him. I'm nothing without him. I've, I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. This is not my life anymore. I've been purchased. I've been redeemed. I've been rescued. I, I'm, I'm now part of a whole different kingdom and a different culture. I belong to Jesus. So since September of 1971, I can honestly say all appropriate weaknesses acknowledged, and I oftentimes report my weaknesses to you, I can honestly say that I have never turned my back on God when he's asked me to do something or to give something. And it begs the question, it begs the question in my own life and it begs the question in all of our lives. What could he ask? What could he ask? What possibly could Jesus ask of us that we would withhold from him? What could he ask? And you say to that, no, that's off limits. Sorry. Appreciate, you know, all that mercy and grace and forgiveness, all that stuff. I'm bound for heaven. My eternity has been secured. <laughs> I have hope. I have life. I have meaning. I have purpose. I have significance. I have a sense of destiny. You've given me everything there is to live for. But no, not that. That's off the list. That's off the table. That's not negotiable. What? What? What could he ask? What is on that list? Seriously. Until we see our relationship with God in that kind of humble gratitude, then we're going to fail in the challenge of obedience. We're going to fail in the challenge of prayer. We're going to fail in the challenge of churchmanship and discipleship and stewardship and in relationship. Until you look upon the cross and see your own personal sin nailed there, you will never know the simple joy of obedience to Christ, whatever he asks of you. The owner of this animal did not try to negotiate with Peter and John. No, no. He didn't try to rationalize his position, didn't try to make an excuse, didn't try to defend his possessions. There was no conversation. Hey, what are you doing? hot wire in my truck, all they said was the Lord has need of it and that's it. That's the end of the conversation. That's it. Man just goes, oh yeah. It's so easy to be consumed. So easy to be consumed with material things that we can easily miss the simple joy and freedom of obedience to Christ. This is what holds people back. People are so easily, especially in our culture, consumed by materialism. And, then, and the notion that in order to be happy and fulfilled in a materialistic culture, you got to pile it up. You know, the, the bumper sticker says the guy that, you know, dies with the most stuff wins. It's insane. It's exactly opposite of the truth. And so people close their hearts. They close their minds. They close their hands. They close their fists. They, and they won't let go. And the reason they won't let go is because they're afraid. If I give Jesus too much, then I'll be unhappy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who, who are possessed by a spirit of poverty, not the, the spirit of mammon or materialism, but the spirit of poverty. And these are folks who have lived close to the margins most of their lives, and so now they're afraid. And in some cases, they're billionaires. 
and they have a spirit of poverty that has clung to their souls. And they won't let go of anything because they're afraid if they let go of something, they won't have enough and they won't be happy. But just the opposite's true, friends. People who live this way, no matter the forces inside of their lives that make them live this way, whatever makes them choose these, these, these styles of life, no matter what it is, it always ends in being more unhappy and more miserly. This is not speculation. This is statistically proven. This is a scientific fact. You can talk to any psychological scientist in the world and they will tell you this because it's absolutely true that the happiest people in the world are the most generous people. People who are generous with their emotions, generous with their words, generous in their relationships, generous with their resources. The happiest people in the world are the most generous people. Shazam. It's true because it's right. It's God's best design and plan. He's done everything for us. And so what do we do in return? Anything he asks. That's what we do. Most people, on the other hand, come to a place in their life, rather than saying, what do you require of me, God? They say, how little can I give in order to stay happy and content? One man who had the gift of giving gave millions of dollars away, and he was asked the question, why do you give so much of your money away? He said, it's the wrong question. He said, the right question is, how do I dare keep so much when God has done so much for me? That leads me to the last point. You might want to write this down. It's an act of faith. An act of faith. Can we put giving in this category as an act of faith? See, I'm convinced that there is no more beautiful nor manifestly biblical way to demonstrate my absolute conviction that God will provide for me than through giving. No better way to demonstrate my absolute confidence and trust that God will take care of me than through giving. So I open my hands and I let, I let go in confidence that God will take care of me. And I have, I have great faith about this. Guys, I've walked with Jesus now for almost 50 years and Beth and I have walked to Jesus, with Jesus together for 42 years and this is how we've lived our lives. And our testimony is God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Every time. This is the way we've led this church for 40 years. We've said to the church, church, let's be generous. Let's not just take care of the stuff that happens within the walls of our church. Let's take care of people outside of the walls of our church. And that's what we've done. And God has blessed us. God has blessed us. See, the Holy Spirit is in us, but he wants to get out. He wants to get out through us to touch the world around us. We are blessed to be a blessing. And so we practice this. We practice it personally. We practice it in leadership. We practice it in every dimension of life. I don't hang around people who aren't generous. I don't associate with ministries that aren't generous. I intentionally avoid people that I know are not generous. I, you say, well, gosh, that's kind of exclusive. You bet. Because I, I know where the blessing flows. I know where the river is. I, and you can find me in the river. So, so you're awful selfish. You got it. Why, do, why am I so generous? Because I'm selfish. I'm a pig. I want the blessing of God in my life. 
hey, call me, call me selfish. I just happen to know the best way to get it. It's by being generous, by being generous. This is the way. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's good for your soul. It, just, it provides a lot of therapy for you. And it just breaks the power of mammon off, the, off your back. Give. It's the only way, by the way, you can get free of materialism. It is the only way. You can't pray it away. You can't cast the devil out of you away. You can't, you, you can't uh, work your way to get, to get the creepiness of mammon off your back. The only way that you can break the power of mammon off your life is to give. It's the only way. So you decide. I'm so convinced of this. I want to challenge you today. You have this insert in your bulletin. We do this once a year. You'll recognize this. It says beyond blessed. Would you just grab that and take that out? I've put some words there on the back. It's right out of the Dave Ramsey playbook. And I hope it encourages you so you can keep that with you. And then a little tear off portion at the, at the back at the bottom. This is where uh, you, I, I want to encourage you, challenge you today to check one of these boxes the first one says, I will continue to tithe. This pertains to a lot of people in the life of our church. We have hundreds of hundreds of giving units in the life of our church, and lots of people are tithers. That's why we're able to do so much for so many people through our, our church together, because God blesses people who tithe. So not only does the church get blessed, but the individual who tithes gets blessed. Everybody's happy. So lots of people, that would be Beth and me, we will go, I will continue to tithe. I'll check that box. Some of you may be ready today. Some of you raised your hand a while ago. It's the first time in your life you said, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life. And this is a category he may be calling you to now. In fact, I know he is. And so you have enough cash flow in your life and you can start tithing. And so I encourage you, just check that. I will start tithing. By the way, we have a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you start tithing and God doesn't meet your need in the first 90 days, I'll give you money back. For example, in the next 90 days, you give $500 to the church, and now you come up short 90 days from now, you just have to make one call, one text, one email to me. Pastor Greg, I'm embarrassed to have to say this, but I gave the church $500, and I can't pay my bills. I will give you your $500 back, and I will give you $500 more because, obviously, you're pitiful. And so that's how generous we will be. But there's a 90-day money-back guarantee. I'm just as serious as I can be. You understand I... I'm not complicated enough to try to yank your chain. I'm just being straightforward with you. Because I just happen to know this works. But Beth and I got married. We, the first year we were married, we, made, we lived on $2,500. You said, that's not possible. Yes, it is. Because we did it. The next year, I got a job in a church, and, and we were making $7,000 as an annual salary. We said to ourselves, what do, we, what do you do with so much money? One thing we did with it was we tithed. And God took care of us. So I just happen to know it works, and so I encourage you to start tithing. It's, great, it's a good idea. Some of you aren't in a position to tithe because you, your behaviors financially have not been wise and good, and you've taken financial peace, or you're taking it right now, and you're learning the baby steps. And in your life right now, what you need to do is you need to get on a budget and get out of debt and get an emergency fund and start learning how to save and invest. And do the baby steps. And so that you're the third box. I will increase my giving with a view toward tithing. And so your goal in life is to be a tither. You want to get there. 
you've made some mistakes, you've been foolish financially, but you want to get your life in order and start practicing the right behaviors. And so step by step, as you go through the baby steps, your goal out there is to be a tither someday, and you want to do that sooner rather than later. And that's, that's a great ambition. You should embrace it with all, all you got. So in the meantime, you want to increase your giving. If you're not giving anything, listen, if you're not giving anything, give something. Give something. It's never about the amount. It's always about your motive. It's always about your heart. Listen to me. Jesus never calculates the amount. He only measures the motive. He only measures your intention about it. So, so if all you've got is 50 cents, put it, put it in an envelope and put it in the offering. And so it's so embarrassing. No, no, it's not. It's noble. It's right. It's good. It's honorable. So do it. If you're not giving anything, give something. Because you can give something. And if you're giving 1%, then kick it up to 2%. And keep building on it as God enables you. Gives you the faith and the grace to do it. Because this is God's best plan and purpose for your life. This is how you find the abundant life. This is how you become more than blessed, beyond blessed. And so check one of those three boxes. I'll continue to tithe. I'm going to start tithing. Or I'm going to increase my giving with a view toward tithing. Put your name on there, your email, your address. And then during our closing song, tear this off the bottom and send it to the aisle and our ushers will collect them. And then this next week or two, I'll send you a letter, depending on this category you're in, to encourage you and to celebrate with you this decision that you've made, okay? Now listen, this is all voluntary. Didn't cost you anything to get in here today. It won't cost you anything to get out. So, but, but this is my challenge to you. You know, I challenge you to play along because this helps people. Just like earlier I asked you to raise a hand, Jesus is Lord, I'm helping you again, take a step. Something intentional that you can do that causes you to make a commitment to important things. So I challenge you to do it, all right? Let's pause and pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this powerful story. And Lord, so it then challenges us with the question, what could you ask of us? What could you ask of me that I wouldn't give? The tithe? What is that? What is that? A car, a house, an attitude, a habit, a relationship? God, what, what could you ask of me that I wouldn't give? And then what does it take? What does it take? Well, it takes everything. It takes everything because Jesus is Lord and the Lord has need of it for his sake, for his glory in response to his love demonstrated for us. Lord, today we say yes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you stand with us?